Turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll begin considering from verse 18. If you're wondering why I don't follow chapter divisions, um, it's because the chapter divisions and verse divisions are not part of the original text. Somebody else came up with it to help us read our Bibles better, but they didn't always do the best job. So this is one of those situations. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 18, and we will read up to chapter 6, verse 20. Um, if you received the email, the, the weekly email from the church, um, you, you, if you have younger kids, you may have some interesting bedtime conversations today, um, as read. <laughs> as Reed said to me this morning, but that's fine. And you may feel a little bit uncomfortable today with what we're talking about in the text, and that's all right, because discomfort is an integral part of the Christian life. It is part of following a Savior who calls us to come and die. In fact, there is a book entitled Uncomfortable, written by Brett McCracken. What? Why is this so high? Sorry. There you go. You know that we changed the pulpit for me. <laughs> All right, now that's much better. Um, Brett McCracken points out the Christian life is not a call to be true to yourself. It's a call to deny yourself, or at least deny those parts of yourself that are incompatible with the human type we'd all should, we should all aspire to imitate, Jesus Christ. The Christian life is a life of change, always growing and always pursuing righteousness as new creations of God. If we are not a people compelled by the sanctifying, shaping power of the Holy Spirit to change us from who we are to who we are meant to be, then we are not the church Jesus wants us to be. And that's part of the reason why the elders are working on a Christian lifestyle statement. We need to be a church where we hold one another accountable and encourage one another to grow in likeness to Jesus. After all, if we are to take 1 Corinthians seriously, we are God's alternative temple here in Guelph. And at the very least, we need to recognize that the spirit who dwells in us is known as the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we need to reflect the presence of the Holy Spirit in the way we conduct ourselves. And that is essentially Paul's challenge in this passage. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning verse 18, up to chapter 6, verse 20. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, 
And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind not that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven, a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have had to leave the world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not, incompet are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do not ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead... You yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, you say? (laughs) But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the word of the Lord. Now, you you will note that Paul's tone changes significantly from chapter 3 and 4, in fact, from chapter 4, 16 to 17, from a fatherly tone urging the Corinthians to imitate his way of life in Christ to chapter chapter 4, 18 to 21, threatening discipline when he comes. And you could sense that Paul is very, very angry with them because he is moving from correcting their foolish status-seeking to correcting their gross misconduct. That's why there's this repeated, do you not know? They might have been immature, but there was no excuse for their behavior. Chapter 5, verse 1, they were guilty of tolerating a man having sexual relations with his stepmother. And to make matters worse, instead of being humbled by the presence of this gross sin in their community, they were arrogant and boastful, even as they blatantly disregarded biblical standards. And it was a public disgrace that was harming the witness of the church. Notice in verse 2, or verse 1, It's of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. And yet, verse 2, they are proud. And so he tells them to expel this man from the church. Verse 2, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been 
doing this. And then in verse 13, he repeats it. Expel the wicked person from among you. It would benefit the witness of the church unless we think that it is unkind to this man. It is actually for the good of the man living in sin. Look at verse 5. He says, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, you might be wondering about the language Paul is using. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Well, um, Thomas Schreiner, along with other scholars, would say that delivering a person over to Satan is another way of saying that he is expelled from the church. All unbelievers are in Satan's sphere since he works in all who are disobedient and is the God of this age. And for the destruction of the flesh is best explained, um, quoting Anthony Thistleton, in Romans 8, 5 to 9, and in numerous other passages, Paul uses sarks or flesh to denote not physical being, but a mode of life lived in pursuit of its own ends, in an attitude of self-sufficiency without reliance upon God. And let's understand, all of us, have a tendency to live like this, don't we? As fleshly people, in contradiction to our status as believers. Paul envisages that the offender, bereft of the approval and support of the community, will find his self-sufficiency and self-reliance eroded until he comes to reach a change of heart. So that you recognize the church discipline is and always must be corrective rather than punitive. The goal is restoration. That's why Paul says that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. But sadly, the church in Corinth was dishonoring Christ and failing this man because they were letting him continue in his sin. Brethren, if we genuinely love one another, then we need to genuinely mourn over our sin, over the presence of sin in the congregation, but we cannot stop there. We cannot be talking behind the person's back. We need to be talking to the person. We need to care enough to correct the person who is sinning. And not just stop there. Speaking the truth in love also means we come alongside a sinning brother or sister to help them to overcome sin. And we are not presuming to be perfect or superior here. We are sinners saved by grace. But we hold one another accountable to the standards of Scripture as people who have been purchased by Christ for himself. Because we understand sin doesn't just diminish our witness, harm the person sinning. Sin also defiles the entire body. That's the argument that Paul is making in verse 6 up to verse 8. 
Paul is concerned to protect the church by rooting out sin. Even if they were not committing incest, Paul says, a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough. That's what sin does. Sin is a cancer that metastasizes throughout the body. It will inevitably infect the church. And Christ, his argument is, Christ gave himself for us to cleanse us from sin. That's what verse 7 is about. Get rid of the oldies so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He's bringing us back to this reality that Christ died to make us new, to cleanse us from sin. So we need to be characterized by sincerity and truth, according to verse 8, instead of malice and wickedness. We are God's holy temple. And we are supposed to let our light shine so that people would see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And that's why Paul moves on in verse 9 to verse 13 to correct the Corinthian misunderstanding of a previous letter. They thought that they were supposed to withdraw into a Christian bubble and judge the world. Paul says, you got it all wrong, people. I want you to exercise church discipline on professing Christians who insist on continuing in their sinful lifestyles. See, in that culture, to share a meal, that's why he says not even to eat with such people, To share a meal is to symbolize acceptance and unity. In fact, that's what we're doing at the Lord's Supper. We're saying to one another, we are brothers. We belong to one another. But for them, to eat a meal with people persisting in sin, and especially sharing the Lord's Supper with them, would have meant approval of the way they were living. So Paul says, no, 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 you got to put that wicked person out. But beyond calling them to exercising church discipline, Paul is also implicitly challenging them to engage with the world around them. And the challenge is for us too, by adorning the gospel with lives of luminous goodness instead of passing judgment upon the world. As Craig Blomberg would put it, the church's first responsibility is always to model God's counter-cultural standards before a watching world, rather than trying to impose those standards on society as a whole. In the Roman Empire, Christians had little opportunity to influence the laws of the land. In, and by the way, and yet, by their lives of luminous goodness, eventually, they exerted an outsized influence. In democracies, believers have the right and the responsibility as citizens to promote their ideological and ethical convictions through legal processes. And hear this well, but they have no unique mandate as the church to try to Christianize nations though they may and ought to speak prophetically to society about the moral issues of their day. 
But let us understand that we cannot speak prophetically if we are violating the very ethics and truths we proclaim. If we are to be taken seriously, people need to see us embody the ethics of the new creation. And that's why Paul moves on in chapter 6. He corrects the Corinthians for acting contrary to their new status in Christ. And that willful disobedience is shown in the fact that they were suing one another in the civil courts. Now, let me just point this out. Paul's injunction against taking legal action against one another does not apply to criminal behavior. The context here is civil courts. We have a responsibility to report criminal behavior to the police. You see, during Paul's day, civil courts were not about justice. Civil courts favored the rich and powerful who were leveraging them to advance their social status by beating down rivals through slander and bribery. And Paul then points out the irony. Don't you realize you are going to judge the world and yet you couldn't judge among yourselves? Verse 2. And the bigger irony was that they claimed to be wise in chapter 4, verse 10. And yet, no one in the church was wise enough to judge a dispute between brethren. Instead, they were going to unbelievers. Verse 4. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? And scorned in the church refers to the fact that the, the believers were seeking the wisdom of the world that God had exposed as foolish through the cross. Paul is using hyperbole to shock the Corinthians out of their folly, to make them come to their senses. Please do not use this as reason to look down on unbelievers or disrespect them. Sadly, I have known many unbelievers who are better than believers morally. It's a difference in wisdom. Paul's point is that it was bad enough that believers were airing their dirty laundry in public. He also recognizes that the lawsuit would have destroyed the unity of the church. And that's why he keeps emphasizing brother against brother. See, at the heart of it, they had forgotten who they were in Jesus Christ. Yes, they were God's temple. They were also God's forever family whom he had gathered together to demonstrate the eternal shalom of the new creation. They were adopted as sons because of the crucified Savior. And this same crucified Savior teaches us to turn the other cheek and by his own example give up our rights to serve others. 
But Paul says, instead of turning the other cheek and giving up your rights to serve others, you yourselves are taking advantage of your brothers. Look at verse 8. Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers and sisters. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I would take advantage of my younger sister. You know, my parents would give us 25 cents. Um, I would get the, I would take the five cents and 10 cents. And she would get the 25 cents, the quarter. And I'd fool her into thinking, oh, you know, the five cents is, it's really cute. It's tiny. It's nice. So that she would insist on taking the five cent piece and giving me the 25 cent piece. She'd even cry and tell my parents that she wanted my five cent piece. <laughs> that was then. <laughs> I know that was really scummy of me. <laughs> I hope none of us do that to our brothers and sisters. But in suing their brothers, they were showing that they were more interested in their selfish interests than in justice or even the proclamation of the gospel. And because they were all about themselves and their advantage, to all intents and purposes, they had already been defeated because they were not living up to what God had intended them to be. And so Paul points them back to God's gracious act in Christ and the inheritance he guarantees. That's in verse 10 or verse 9. And he couches it in the form of a warning. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Implicitly, he's saying to those people who are suing their brothers, are you a wrongdoer? Are you saying that you value getting your way, advancing your status, more than the inheritance of the kingdom of God that God has already procured for you and promises you? And then he goes on, he warns them, Wrongdoers, it's not a one-off, it's people whose pattern of life reflects the sins that he lists, will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is not that people lose their salvation, and it is not that people become second-class citizens of heaven. Rather, to persist in sin is to show that you are not a believer in the first place. So that essentially Paul is challenging the Corinthians to live out who they really are. So in verse 11, he reminds them, God already rescued them from their old way of life. Look at verse 11. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our Lord. He's telling them, guys, you don't need to keep living in the past patterns of your life. Instead, the hope of entering the kingdom and inheriting the kingdom 
should motivate you to live in purity and love. Because no amount of status or money could compare to what God is promising. And that's the same challenge for you and me. Christ has cleansed us. We need to live out the true identity that God has given us in Christ. We have been washed, cleansed of all our sins. We are sanctified. We have been set apart for God's purposes. We have been justified. We are declared righteous in Christ, accepted because of his redemptive sacrifice. And when God looks at us, he sees not our sinfulness, but the righteousness of Jesus that fully pleased him. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God who is transforming us into the image of Jesus. So we need to become what we already are. We need to be God's showcase for shadowing the beauty of his new creation society. You want to think of it another way? We are God's movie trailer of the age that is to come. And it's something we need to bear in mind because it is so hard to do what Paul is saying here. To give up our rights and privileges and turn the other cheek. Because our world has conditioned us to look out for number one, me. It's conditioned us to protect ourselves, to make our personal interests our priority. But Paul is commanding us to trust that our just and righteous God has committed himself to taking care of us and that he will make all things right in the end. And as we suffer for the sake of Jesus, we will share in his glory. Now, you will note that the NIV rendering is rather politically incorrect in verse 10. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor dr- oh. Oh, verse 9, sorry. Neither, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Evangelical scholars are in agreement that this rendering, men who have sex with men, is accurate despite scholarly and popular attempts to diminish the meaning of Paul's statement. But I also want you to understand that Paul does not single out simply men who have sex with men. He also calls out heterosexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, theft, greed, drunkenness, slander, and swindling. All of these sins violate the standards of God. They reflect disordered desires and distorted loves that defy God and destroy lives. We may not be guilty of being men who have sex with men, but we do need to think of whether or not we can be guilty of 
immorality, adultery, theft, greed, drunkenness, slander, and swindling. And thus, repent. Because it is our privilege to hold out the hope of transformation that only Christ can truly offer. See, we don't offer and we will never offer conversion therapy. We do not fix people. That's outside my job description. What we do is we point people to Jesus. We take seriously the language of verse 11, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's why we point people to Jesus. He's the one who transforms people into his image as he is transforming us in community. He is the one who gives us new hearts. And his love reorients us to love him and desire what pleases him. That's the only way our disordered desires and distorted loves can be corrected. And that's why Paul, chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, now calls the church to purity by telling them essentially to flee sexual immorality, verse 18. Because it seems that some members of the church had been frequenting prostitutes. You. But Paul's response to the issue gives us a larger ethical vision than simply avoiding sin. He points out first in verse 12 that freedom isn't the ability to do as you please. You see, doing as you please actually enslaves you to a very foolish master who also happens to be insatiable, yourself. Biblical freedom is being what God intends you to be. And that's why you notice what he says. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. See, we experience true freedom when we live under the Lordship of Christ, who made us for his glory and who knows what is best for us. True freedom is living as someone who belongs to God, body and soul. That's 19 to 20, we'll get there. But Paul wants us to understand that God cares for our bodies and what we do with our bodies. That's why he makes a point about the resurrection of the body. That just as Jesus, in verse 14, was raised from the dead, so our bodies will also be raised from the dead. See, some Greeks considered the body irrelevant because it's going to decay and die. That's essentially what verse 13 is about. Food for the stomach, the stomach for food. God will destroy them both. In other words, don't worry about it. Your body doesn't matter. But if Jesus rose again as a physical, with a physical body, 
then we will also rise again with a physical body. That means that Christianity is the most body-positive belief system. As believers, we celebrate the creativity of God that designed and crafted these bodies. Take a look at your body. I know you're not happy with aspects of it. Understand this. God made that body for you. We rejoice in the fact that these bodies are God's gift to us. And yes, that means we need to take care of them. Our nutritionists have ample reason to get on my back. If God gave us these bodies and is intending to resurrect these bodies so that they will be like the glorified body of Jesus, then we cannot, must not misuse our bodies by allowing ourselves to be mastered by anything. And we need to refuse to dishonor our bodies by objectifying ourselves through the way we dress or the way we conduct ourselves. If our bodies will rise again, then we need to care for these bodies. And we need to use these bodies to serve God's purposes out of gratitude to him for how he made us. And what that means then, and this is where you may have some bedtime conversations with your kids, that sex is more than just scratching an itch or satisfying a physical desire. That's the implication of verse 13. You say food for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. They were saying, Paul, it's just sex. Paul points out that because we are united to Christ by faith, our bodies are limbs and organs of Jesus. And so to have sex with prostitutes is to unite those limbs and organs belonging to Jesus to a prostitute. That's unspeakable defilement. You're joining Jesus to a prostitute. Ew. And Paul then, in saying this, challenges our cultural narrative. It's just sex. So long as adults are consenting, it's fine. Anything goes. And Paul is saying, no, you're wrong. That misunderstands the beauty, the wonder of sexual relations. Because the physical pleasure of sexual relations is just a small part of the way God designed it. Whether or not you are aware sexual relations creates a bond between the persons involved. And to prove it, Paul cites Genesis 2, 24. In verse 16, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body, for it is said, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. 
I love Marva Dawn's comments on the meaning of one flesh. And I think she's very correct. This name for sexual union indicates this profound mystery in God's design for human sexuality. Sexual union creates a uniquely comprehensive bond. To tear it apart fractures every dimension of an individual's whole being. To stitch that bond with more than one partner causes a schizophrenic psyche or soul. And that's why Paul says in verse 18, whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. You are harming yourself in using your body wrongly. Our sexuality is a wonderful gift from our good God. And I hope you understand the Christian sexual ethic is not at all repressive. In fact, it closes with, therefore, honor God with your bodies. And then chapter 7 goes into, what does that mean for married couples? That's for September 25. Don't run away. (laughs) You may blush, but... Be here. (laughs) See, following God's standards allows us to experience and enjoy our sexuality properly. And I dare say, to the glory of God. See, Alan Noble points out, what have we gained if we are relieved of the responsibilities of self-belonging only to come under the yoke of self-denial? Freedom. When the yoke is not self-righteous legalism, but rightly ordered love, denying yourself the fulfillment of desires gives you the freedom to delight in the goodness before you. And that's what the Christian sexual ethic is all about. Underlying all of this is the fact that we do not own ourselves. Verse 19 and 20, Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Here's how precious the body is. Jesus purchased us with his precious blood. And because of that, we are the dwelling place of God's spirit. Yes, the church is the dwelling place of God by his spirit. But so is your body. Our bodies matter. Jesus is going to raise them again. He has given us the gift of belonging to him, body and soul. And he is giving us the privilege here and now to honor him with these bodies that he has given us to steward. And that's the goal that should shape everything we do. That's why we live in purity and truth. Because the abiding presence of the Spirit is in us and with us. That's why every aspect of life falls under the the rubric of worship. 
We are with God. God is with us every moment. And so in grateful adoration for this God who has given us these bodies, who promises to redeem these bodies so I don't have to worry about cholesterol and diabetes and high blood pressure anymore. But who has given us this life and this body and continues to sustain these bodies, we give ourselves to serving His purposes so that we offer ourselves to Him, body and soul, for His glory, and amazingly enough, for our joy. Because as we use our bodies for His glory, we become more fully human. We become more and more what God created us to be in the first place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your word that tells us that our bodies are good. Yes, they are suffering from the curse of sin. So we decay, we we have all sorts of issues, and we are not always happy with the way our bodies look. But we thank you that our bodies are a gift from you, and that you condescend to dwell in us. It's not about the gaudiness or how good we look. It is that you have chosen to love us, to dwell with us, and to transform us into the image of Christ so that we, with our bodies, may serve and glorify you. And in so doing, fulfill the chief end of man to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And you mean for us to enjoy you with these bodies. Knowing that there is a greater hope that one day Christ will return and these bodies will be transformed to be like his glorious resurrection body. And we will be able to serve him and enjoy his presence to the fullest. I pray, Father, that that hope would lead us to be better stewards, more faithful stewards of this body, not just to take care of it, but to steward it so that we live, we use our bodies for your glory, for, our, for your honor. This is pray in Jesus' name. Amen.